You're listening to the sermon podcast from Meadowbrook Church in Cheyenne, Wyoming, with Pastor Keith Miller. Hi. Good morning. So today, for God's uh, Word, we're uh, in the book of Malachi. We're going to read chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. So if you will all stand with me in honor of God's Word. The Oracle of the Word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build up, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people whom Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Well, good morning. We are in Malachi. What I want to do is I, to set up verse 1. There's some, some ground that we need to gain. There's some, some, um, some things that we, that we need to know in order to really appreciate even the very first verse of Malachi. And before I even get there, the title of the sermon series is Worthship. So the, the very, I mean, the root of worship and what it means, it means to attribute worth to something. That's why I'm calling it Worthship. Uh, I have more in my manuscript. You can check that out when it's available online. But uh, it literally means to attribute worth to something. Uh, When you think of worship, if your thought is that worship is what happens on Sunday morning, then you do not understand the meaning of worship. Worship is, if if you're attributing worth to something, it it is a way of life. It's the culture of your life. And, and Malachi is addressing that. Like, I, I think one of the great themes of Malachi is worship. But worship as a way of life, or worship as all of life, uh, it is placed in, in the Old Testament as the very last book in your Old Testament, in the Old Testament is in your Bible. You, uh, there's a whole lot of my manuscript that, that I talk about concerning why that is and how it came to be. But what I'll say is this. In your New Testament, you have 27 books and uh, they're comprised of the Gospels, Acts, uh, the, the, the Epistles, uh, and the Book of Revelation. In the Old Testament, you have 39 books, and you have books, the historical books, or the books of history, which are from Genesis through Esther. They cover from a period of time from 400 uh, B.C. to, to um, and on, I'm sorry, all, all the way up until 400 B.C., um, from the beginning to 400 B.C., then you have books of poetry, Job uh, through Song of Solomon that were written between 1400 B.C. And, and the 300s B.C. You have the books of prophecy, Isaiah and Malachi. And I say all that to just tell you that you have two groupings in, in the Old Testament. You have the major pro- of, of, prof- of the prophetic books. You have major prophets and you have the minor prophets. Does that mean that Malachi, that, that's considered a minor prophet, is less significant than Isaiah, that's considered a major prophet? No. You want to know why? Because the major prophets are the long prophetic books, and the minor prophets are the shorter ones. And that's the, that's the only reason. 
Um, and the way that the, these books have been placed in your Bible, uh, the, in the, the major prophets from, begin, from, from, from Isaiah and following, it's kind of sequential in terms of time. Uh, Malachi, it's the same thing. Then you have Malachi. All that to say is that I believe that Malachi was the last prophet to speak on God's behalf before there was a period of about 400 years of silence before the birth of Jesus. And that's why in your Bible, Malachi is placed as the very last book in the Old Testament. And so, so you got Malachi, and, and it's the last book in the Old Testament, and he has something very significant to say about worship. Uh, but, but what you also need to know is that the Old Testament, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament is the same God. The story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is the same story. It's the story of redemption from beginning to end. The great theme of the Bible is Jesus, the second person of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is why Hebrews begins, the, very, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament begins with these words, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets like Malachi, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his who? His son. It's the most perfect revelation of himself. The fullest revelation of, of who God is, is Jesus. I said in the Jude series, and I'll say it again, that uh, Jesus is the cornerstone of your faith. If you get Jesus wrong, you'll get God wrong, right? And if you get Jesus right, you'll get God right uh, in terms of your understanding. So he is, you know, that God spoke to our, uh, has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, meaning he's God, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as a much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. If you look at, like, from Isaiah through Malachi, if you can envision the first chapter of Isaiah as one bookend and the last like chapter of Malachi as another bookend of the prophetic books I want you just to kind of hear this the words will be on the screen Isaiah begins with these words hear O heavens and give ear O earth for the Lord has spoken children have I reared and brought up but they have rebelled against me the ox knows its owner the donkey its master's crib but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Oh, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They, have utter, they are utterly estranged. They're, they're just lost, right? And then the, the very last thing, thing that Malachi states is, Malachi chapter 4, the, this, this last chapter says, Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. They, that day, or the day that is coming, shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. No, look at this. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. It's alluding to this Redeemer who's going to come, this Jesus. You shall go out leaping like calves released from the stall. If that's not a Wyoming verse, I don't know what is, right? Like, like when, I, when I first preached through Malachi, I could not appreciate this paragraph in the Bible as much as I do now, being here for about five years in, in Wyoming. And so, uh, 
That, that's like the bookend of Malachi. And then you have these 400 years of silence and then the birth of Jesus. And so I have, I, I have three points. And really, I don't even want to call them points. They're just signposts. And the first is the timing, um, the timing of Malachi. Well, why, um, you know, <laughs> I couldn't think of anything more creative than that, the timing of Malachi. Here's what I'm going to say to you is that when, what I mean by the timing of Malachi is that when Malachi arrived on the scene, what was going on? Like when, when he arrived in Jerusalem, when he was in Jerusalem and he was speaking on God's behalf, what was happening? What had happened? What had taken place? Here, here's what I want to do for you. I just want to set the stage for Malachi. And we'll, we're, we're only going only to spend our time in two verses today. But um, here, here's what I want to say. Remember, uh, God told Abraham, there's going to come a period of time where your descendants, Abraham, will wind up being slaves in a foreign land. That happened. Israel wound up, the, the people of Israel wound up becoming slaves in where? Egypt. Good job. So they wound up in Egypt, and then, a guy, then God raised up a guy by the name of Moses and, and called Moses to lead Israel out of the bondage of the slavery that they were experiencing in Egypt. So God did that in a miraculous way. They crossed the Red Sea. Then uh, Moses you know, goes up on top of a mountain and he, he hears the word from the Lord. And God says through Moses to Israel, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So, so when we read the story of Israel in the Old Testament and you ask yourself, did they do Exodus chapter 19 well? The answer is no, they didn't. What was the point? Well, the point is this, and this is what you need to hear. Like when, when God called Israel, I'm going to talk more about this next week. When God called Israel to himself, God was not saying... By doing that, he was not saying, I am going to redeem this people group and to hell with the rest of the nations. That's not what God was doing. What he was doing was, I am going to raise up this these group of people, the Hebrew people, I am calling them Israel, and they will be to me a kingdom of priests, and they will their purpose is to represent me before the nations in a redemptive way. Um, but they didn't do that, and they didn't do well at, at all. In fact, it was not even, it was just a, a number of chapters later, Moses goes up to receive the Ten Commandments, and, and what did Israel do? They were thinking, man, uh, well, Moses has taken a long time up, up on that mountain. Who knows what happened to him? So we need a God who will lead us. So I know what we will do is we'll create a golden calf, and we will worship that. I mean, literally, you chapter 19, and then you get into chapter 21, and it's a mess and so, uh, of Exodus. And so uh, we're told that what they did was, after they made this golden calf and they worshipped it, they rose up to play. Now, what you need to know is when it says that they rose up to play, we're not talking about pickleball, we're not talking about soccer, we're not talking about football, we're not talking about any of those things. When they rose up to play, they rose up to sin against God and, uh, and did some horrible things. In Deuteronomy, God warned them and he told them, look, if you worship other gods, then this land that you are inheriting, this land that I promised to Abraham, Isaac, 
and Jacob um, will vomit you out, literally. He's like, I, I, will, I will raise up another nation to discipline you, and you will be carried out into exile. And that's exactly what happened over a period of time. But before that happened, you had uh, Israel, they wanted, I'm just giving you a survey of the Old Testament here. You had Israel who, uh, like when you get to, when you get to like the book of Judges and then you get to First and Second First Samuel, you have Israel looking at the other nations like, wow, these other nations, they have a king over them. And uh, so let's get somebody like that to uh, lead us. So they asked this prophet Samuel to find that person for them. And, um, and when essentially what, what Israel was asking is, you know, God has been good, but he's not good enough. We want a king like the rest of the nations have. So they found Saul, and Saul looked the part of a king. He was tall, he was handsome, he was strong, he was a warrior. They're like, yeah, that's the one. That's, who, that's the guy that we want. And so Saul becomes king over Israel. That didn't go well. That was a train wreck. And then you have a guy by the name of David, by, which, by whom all other kings after David are compared to. David was not a perfect king, but he loved God. He loved God with all of his heart. He wrote, in fact, most of the Psalms that are in your, your Old Testament, David wrote. And so he wrote, he was a musician and he was a king. And so uh, after, after him, there's a guy by the name of, anybody? Solomon, right? So Solomon uh, winds up becoming, I'm oversimplifying this, but he winds up becoming king. And the thing that set Solomon apart from David, one of the big things, was David was, was a man of war. Solomon was not. David wanted to build the temple. Um, Solomon built the temple, this place of worship, um, where, and God said, you can get all the pieces together, but you can't build the temple, David. Your hands are just stained with blood. So Solomon did that, and Solomon started his life off really, really well, built the temple, instituted a season of peace that Israel had not known up until that point. But Solomon is also, as you learn of him, he is the wisest fool that you will encounter in the Bible, right? So what did he do? Well, he's like, well, all the nations do this, so I think this is a good idea for me to do it. Like all the nations, they, the kings will take upon themselves wives from other nations as a peace treaty so that the, so the dad of that, of that woman will not invade my, you know, my country. And that's what, they, that's what Solomon did. And how many wives did he take upon himself? Too many. Like one too many. Like, like one's enough. Uh, he had, was it 300 wives and uh, uh, how many concubines? So, yeah, um, a lot. He was a Hugh Hefner of Israel. Um, he was, and it was, and it got really bad. I'm not being crass. I'm just being like legit. Like, so what did he do? Well, he wanted to make sure that his wives were happy, so he created these places of worship for them. And then you had worship like the god of Moloch and other gods that were beginning to be worshipped in Israel. So Solomon dies, and then, then, his ki then the kingdom gets torn into two. You have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. This is really important, set, setting up Malachi now. You have the, so you had the northern kingdom. They identified themselves as Israel. You had the southern kingdom. They identified themselves as Judah. In the northern kingdom, you had ten, the ten tribes of Israel that lived up there. In the southern kingdom, you had two, tri two primary tribes, Benjamin and Judah. Judah is the line of kings, okay? Um, the, I can't remember his name, but the king of the northern kingdom 
said, you know what? We don't want people in the north to go down to the south because the problem with that is the temple is in the south. It's in Jerusalem. So what we're going to do instead to keep people from going down to the temple to worship Yahweh, we will set up essentially a golden calf in the northern part of our kingdom and a golden calf in the southern part of the northern kingdom just by where the border is. And the, and the king said, you will worship the, this god. And so, surprise, surprise, what happens with the northern kingdom? They wind up worshiping other gods. And God did exactly what he warned them, and he warned them for hundreds of years. Some of the prophets that are in your Bible spoke into the lives of those uh, of the northern kingdom. And God raised up an empire by the name, or a kingdom by the name of Syria, right? Assyria. Assyria comes in, and these, are, these guys were horrible. They, it is said that the, the Assyrian Empire invented the earliest forms of psychological warfare. They would cut off the heads of certain individuals, uh, people that, a lot of whom the, the, the nation would, may have recognized, and they would pile them up in the form of a pyramid outside of the city or the capital and basically say, see, if, you, if, you, if we invade you, this is what we're going to do to you, so you should just, you should just uh, surrender. They, it is said that uh, the Assyrian Empire, that the Assyrians invented the earliest forms of crucifixion through, with impalement. And they, they were just horrible. What they would do, though, what they would also do is they would take the exiles of the said people group that they defeated, and they would disperse them in other areas and force them to intermarry. So not only would they, you know, all the horrible things that would happen in war happen, um, like it happened in the northern kingdom, but these women and children and men were dispersed into other, in other regions uh, within the Assyrian Empire. This is where you get the Samaritans, where you read, uh, you read you know, the Gospel of John chapter 4 and you come across the Samaritan woman. They were considered half-breeds because they were the result of the Assyrian Empire forcing them to intermarry. So you had that. Then you have the southern kingdom, and they're like, this is what they were thinking, right? They were thinking, we have the temple. Because we have the temple, we have the presence of God. We have Yahweh. What happened to the northern kingdom won't happen to us. And so, so you had prophets who God raised up that spoke into the, the idolatry of the southern kingdom because they started worshiping other gods, and it, it, it was a big mess. God warned them, and then they didn't listen. So what happened? You had an empire by the name of Babylon, that God raised up. So when you read Daniel, Daniel is in the southern kingdom. Daniel is one of the exiles that was carried off into Babylon. So you have the Babylon come in and they besieged Jerusalem. They surrounded Jerusalem, starved Jerusalem. There is archaeological evidence that shows that, that um, when they did that, not before they leveled Jerusalem, while they were besieging Jerusalem, we are told that women were eating their babies. This is how horrible it was. Babylon did what, what Judah thought could never happen. They not only leveled Jerusalem, they destroyed Solomon's temple. <clears throat> and they carried him off into exile. The Assyrians, what they wanted to do is they wanted to just mess up the identity of the people. And the way they did that was they wanted to dissolve their national identity by forcing them to intermarry and displacing them in other regions outside of their nation, the nation that they you know, lived. What Babylon did is that they would rename their exiles. They would 
make them eat their food, and they would make them worship their gods so that their national identity would become Babylon's identity, like they would take on Babylon's identity. You follow me? Okay, so now we're ready for, for Malachi um, you know, verse, you know, verse 1. Malachi, he was, uh, he's writing to a group of people who, who for generations before were in exile, um, which I'm already in my second point, the need for Malachi. You had uh, three, there's three books in your Bible that, that's really, that would be good for you to, to be aware of. There is Ezra, you familiar with Ezra? And then there's Nehemiah, there's also um, Esther, right? Uh, so these three, these three individuals are individuals that were experienced the Persian Empire or the Persian Kingdom, and um, and so when you read Esther, you know this is not a nice story. Like when Esther went into the king's chambers, that king was a pagan and he was violent and he was not a good man, um, but he loved Esther. And so that's not a nice Sunday school story. Um, Ezra, God used Ezra to build, to rebuild the temple that was destroyed. So what the Persians allowed, the Persians would allow a group of people to go, in this case Israel, they would allow the Hebrews to go back into their, their land um, and to begin rebuilding it. And so that was one of the good things about the Persian Empire. So, so Ezra goes in and he goes in and he builds a temple. There's another guy by the name of Nehemiah who goes into Israel and he rebuilds the walls. When Nehemiah gets in there, um, the temple is already built and the people were not really worshiping Yahweh. We're not worshiping God. And when you get to Nehemiah chapter 10, uh, we read these words. Let's go to that slide. Um, this is what the people said that they would do. So they were, they were not living for God. They were, they, were, they were doing all kinds of horrible things. There's this they call it Nehemiah's reform, so they kind of, these, these group of people turned their hearts back to God, supposedly, and this is what they said to Nehemiah in Nehemiah chapter 10, we will walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe, to do all commandments of the Lord, you know, Yahweh our Adonai, our sovereign one, and his rules and his statutes, meaning Yahweh is not only going to be our God, he's also our king, we will, we will worship him. And guess what happens three chapters later in Nehemiah? Not that. <laughs> they're, they're back into their old ways. This is, this is what Malachi enters into. He enters into this kind of culture of where the people were. And, and he begins with these words, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Now, before we, even, uh, before we unpack that, I mean, there are two things I want to show you but before I even show you that, I want you to get to, uh, just hear the tone of Malachi. I put some verses on the screen. I, there's a series of questions and answers, this dialogue between God and Israel. And the first is, is this, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. Let's go to the next one. Um, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? 
God's answer is, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. Let's go to the next one. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and, delight, and he delights in them. Remember I said in the Jude series, there's nothing new under the sun, just different dress? Like, doesn't that sound like today? <laughs> right? Um, and uh, <clears throat> he goes on, and, or by asking, where is the God of justice? And then, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and your contributions? And there's one other one that I, I, I failed to put up on the screen here, and I'll just read it for you. It's later on in chapter 3. It says, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? That's the tone of Malachi. We're going to get to all these in, in this series. But I just wanted to point that out to you. Now, here's the most important thing. How should we receive Malachi, the book of Malachi? How should we receive the book of Malachi? Here's where it gets good. This is why I decided I'm just stopping at verse 2 and we'll pick up the rest of it next week. And, that it, and it's right here. If you have a Bible, I hope that you do, you can, that you'll open to it and you'll see this. Use your digital device. Take notes. This is important. The oracle of the word of the Lord. Just stop there. The word of God. Well, the very first thing is that, that Malachi is reminding this displaced, beat up, used up, beaten up, um, uh, people from the north and from the south is that he still speaks to his people. That's the very first thing. The oracle of the word of the Lord. And then look what he calls them. Look, look what he calls them. To Israel. Now, the significance of this, don't let, it, don't let this be lost on you. The significance of this is that for hundreds and hundreds of years, you had the northern kingdom and you had the southern kingdom. You had the ten tribes of Israel, and you had Judah and Benjamin, and then they were displaced. Assyria through, you know, raped and pillaged uh, uh, the northern kingdom and then displaced these people. And then Babylon made, made these people take on a Babylonian identity. Now you have a small remnant, a, a, a small grouping of these people in Jerusalem. The temple has been built by Ezra. Nehemiah oversaw the building of the, of the walls around Jerusalem. And what God calls them is Israel. He's not, saying, he's not singling out the northern kingdom. What he's doing is, it doesn't matter how beat up you are, it doesn't matter how much you've sinned, it doesn't matter how far you strayed from me, what I'm telling you people is that you are my people, you are Israel. Like in a minute, we're going to be introduced to Jacob. Jacob is the father of the 12 tribes of, Israel, uh, uh, of Israel as a nation. God changed Jacob's name to Israel. And he, and he addresses them as Israel. He doesn't, I, I, he doesn't look at them and say, well, 
there, that's the future Samaritans there, a bunch of half-breeds, and this, this person's, you know, this group is used up, and this group, I don't know, even know what to call them anymore. You know, and God just throws up his hands and like, well, I'll just make do with what I have. That's not what he does. He, he, he calls them Israel. He, in a supernatural, miraculous way, he has, through all of those years and through all the wanderings of his, of his people and through what Assyria did and Babylon did, which God used Assyria and Babylon to discipline his people, what he did was he preserved his people. Why did he preserve his people? Because through their line, through their gene pool, a Messiah would be born 400 years after Malachi. And that's not the only thing that's going on here that I, I need to show you. And that is, look at verse 2, the very first thing that he says. Before he rebukes these people, um, before he says anything, he says, I have loved you. Israel, I love you. doesn't matter what all the nations say that you are. It doesn't matter what Persia thinks that you are. You are Israel. And I love you. And what is Israel's, what, what, is, what is the response? Well, before we get to the response, you know how God, you know, if God was a fair God, we're going to get to this next week, but I just want you to hear this. Like if God was a fair God, what he, what he should have said or what he would have said is what we read in Isaiah, or no, in Hosea chapter 7, verse 13. Woe to you, for you have strayed from me, destruction to you, for you have rebelled against me. But instead, God's response to them is, O oh Israel, I love you. I love you. And what is their response? How? How have you loved us? Like, how, how do you explain Assyria, God? How do you explain Babylon, God? You know, how do you, like, I have, I have, my whole family tree is a mess because of Assyria. My whole, my, my whole identity is confused because of Babylon. Like, how have you loved us? Now, how many of you are married in this room? Right? Usually, like, when, when you walk out the door, probably what happens is something like this, what happens in, in our home is you probably, you may say to your spouse, honey, I love you. And you expect the response to, to be reciprocated with what? I love you too. If you are leaving the house and you say to your spouse, honey, I love you, and it is silent, what does that mean? Mm-hmm, yeah, somebody's in trouble, right? If, if your spouse responds, how have you loved me? You know it's like really bad. Like it went from like, you know, it's not an argument where your, your spouse is just aggravated with you or thinks you're an idiot for a season. It's like, how? How have you loved me? That's where things are at between God and his relationship with, with Israel. With, with these people. How have you loved us? How have you loved us? Now, uh, I'm going to unpack this, but, but, I, I, but for this, I have to do this before I conclude. He listened to God's answer. 
Listen to the way that he answers them. Here's his answer. Here's how I loved you. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Like, he said that. <laughs> it's not Pastor Keith saying this. Like, God, this is God's answer to Israel. Esau I have hated, but Jacob I have loved. What is he getting at here? The word hate that's used here is similar to the word to the word hate that Jesus used when he talked about what it means to what it will mean to follow him. Like Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Was Jesus saying you need to be vindictively angry and you know be a jerk to your parents? No. What he was ta- he's talking about um uh, like the most important relationship that you have on planet Earth is with, 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 would be with Jesus, and everything else is a distant second. That's what he's talking about here. Esau I've hated, Jacob I have loved. Now there are three types of way, three three ways that God loves people in the Bible, and I just want to point this out to you. There is God's love of uh, beneficence or benefit. It's his love. There's his love of benevolence. And there's his love of complacency. Now, I'll explain complacency in a second because you may be thinking, well, complacent, to be complacent is kind of mundane. Well, no. In its original meaning, it means far more than that. Um, but the, his love of benefit is, you know, uh, the sunrise, so we'll just single out Jacob and Esau. The same sun that's shone upon Jacob, shone upon Esau, right? The same rain that fell upon Jacob, fell upon Esau. That's God's love of benefit. That's his... Is, that's his love of benefit. So in our world today, the same sun that shines on you, Christian, shines on your neighbor who doesn't know Jesus. It's, so that's his love of benefit. Then his love of benevolence. Benevolence literally means goodwill. That's, that's what it means, literally goodwill. The opposite of benevolence is a word, what? Benevolent, meaning evil, evil love or evil will. Um, so his love of benevolence. Well, when you, in the life groups, if you're in a life group, hopefully you'll stay after if you're not in a life group and get connected to a life group. But in the life groups this week, you're going to look at and visit the story of Jacob and Esau and what happened there. Um, but what you'll discover is that God blessed Esau in a lot of the same ways that he blessed Jacob, financially, with material stuff. Not just, not just financial stuff, but also with descendants and so, so Jacob and Esau, here's what I want you to hear. Jacob and Esau both experienced God's, love of, uh, God's benevolent love and his, be- his love of benefit. Uh, of benefit. Um, what Esau didn't experience and that Jacob did experience was God's love of complac- complacency. Now, in my manuscript, I talk about this. I break that word up a little bit, but it, its root literally means to, um, to be basically to, to delight in. So you can be complacent like, like I delight in my laziness, so therefore I'm not doing anything. I'm going to be complacent. Or, or in this case, God's love of complacency is he's delighting in, in a person or a thing. In this case, it's Jacob. I just want you to see that. There is a difference there. It's not that God was vindictive towards Esau. It's just that he set Jacob apart as his covenant representative. Um, literally, God took great pleasure in or was greatly pleased in Jacob. This is the answer God, that God gives to this beat-up, 
uh, messed up, used up, ragtag group of Hebrew people gathered in Jerusalem in Malachi's day. I, this, is, this is how you know that I love you. Because Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. I mean, think about that. And I, I just want to bring this back to you, and then we'll, we'll pick up next week you know, with the rest of these verses. But what does this mean for you? <clears throat> well, God, like God spoke to the Malachi, and he said, hey, I am still speaking to my people. God has spoken to you, and he's spoken to me. Not just through his word, but even greater than, greater than, than <clears throat> the written word, he has spoken to us by his son. Yeah, I, I, I began with Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, like Malachi, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Christian, listen, if you're in this room and you, you, you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you're sitting there and, you're, and, you're, and your response right now is, but Pastor Keith, you don't know. You, you don't know my past. You don't know, you don't know, I, I, you, you don't know who I've lost in my family. You don't know who I had to watch be buried. You don't know the abuses that I suffered. You don't know how I've been treated. I want you to hear, and, and you, you're, the temptation for you might be, well, how has God loved me? What I want you to hear is that he loves you, and the way that you know he loves you is because he sent his son to live a life that you could never live, to die a death on a cross in your place for your sins, and on the third day he validated that when he rose from the grave. Listen, Christian, God loves you. He loves you. And, yeah, and there's one more here. Like, he not only loves you, but he, the love that, that he has demonstrated upon you and is demonstrating upon you is his love of complacency as I defined it just a few minutes ago. He delights in you. He delights in you. And, and, and you're like, well, well, how do I know that? Let's go to the next verse. Let's read this together. Ready? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Here's another one. It's, it's not on the screen, but I'll, I'll share it with you. You might want to write it down. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, behold, take notice, be, marvel at this. Behold the love of God that we should be called the children of God. Amen? And if you're wondering, man, how does God love me? Jesus went to a cross in your place. He was buried. He was in the tomb for three days. On the third day, he rose from the grave, validating his love for you. That's how you know he loves you. I, I need to stop there, but and we'll pick up next week. But man, it, don't let that escape your notice. Like, this God loves you, and when he sees you, he doesn't see some messed up, abused, used up, ragtag of a person that's beyond his redemptive power. When he sees you, he sees a son, and he sees a daughter. That's how God sees you. He, if you are a Christian, he sees you as a son, or he sees you as a daughter, period. And, and we're told in the Bible, in the New Testament, just read 1 Peter chapter 2 sometime, that that he treasures you. you. You're treasured by the God of all creation. And you know that he treasures you because of what was accomplished on that cross by and through his son. You know he treasures you because on the third day he rose from the grave validating all that he claimed to be and claimed to do for you and on your behalf. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to the Meadowbrook Church Podcast. For more information about our church, visit meadowbrook.org.